Hello world, this is Better Tech, a podcast where we chat with some of the most successful leaders about the latest industry developments. So join us as we explore the world reliant on tech. I'm Ahmed Rabid, the Global Communication Manager at Benetech. Today, I welcome you to another episode of Benetech Startup Series, where we usually host guests that are startup founders and hear about their struggles and achievements, and we discuss all their pain points. So without further ado, before we get to talk about building a brand, let's have a quick introduction about yourself and your app. Thanks, Manor. Uh, really great to be here. Really excited uh, to share uh, our story. So my background is, um, so I started uh, co-founder CEO of a company called Equals. Uh, we've been at it for about two and a half years now. Uh, before that, I was an analyst. I spent the last 10 years as uh, somebody who was in finance and analytics. Uh, within those 10 years, I spent eight years at a company called Intracom. I started when the company was 20 people. I left and it was almost 700 people from a million in ARR to over a couple, over a couple hundred million in ARR. Uh, and there I ran finance, analytics, biz ops, a few other teams. And that's really what kind of inspired the idea for uh, Equals. Equals is a tool that I wish that I'd had in my time as an analyst and in my time in running and building finance analytics uh, at uh, Intercom. So Equals is, uh, first and foremost, it's a spreadsheet uh, because Every meaningful business decision that I've ever made has happened out of a spreadsheet. Every analysis I've ever done, has ha- every meaningful analysis I've ever done has happened in a spreadsheet. And what I really want as a tool, as an analyst, is a spreadsheet. Uh, but Equals is different from Excel and Sheets in that it's, first and foremost, it's connected to live data. So it's built on top of every data warehouse, but also connected to Stripe, Salesforce, QuickBooks, Google Analytics, the most commonly used SaaS tools. Uh, it's fully collaborative. It's got a version history uh, and a whole lot more is coming and how we kind of uh, distribute reports uh, within an organization. Thank you for that. Um, could you walk us through as to what led you to start your own company? What was that first step that you decided to start your own company? So for me, I mean, it's been a journey uh, ever since I really left college and started my career. I've always kind of known that I've been pointed towards wanting to start my own company. Uh, so I, when I graduated, I Actually, it started really at, at Stanford, where I went to college. Uh, I took a class by a guy named Steve Blank, uh, who wrote a book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany. And in this class, over the course of 10 weeks, you had to actually go and start a company. Uh, and so you had to figure out what your idea was. You had to go and find the problem. So you had to interview potential customers, prospects, find a pain point. And then over the course of the 10 weeks, you had to put together the company. And then at the end of it, you actually had to pitch it to VCs and they gave you feedback on whether or not they liked the idea, whether it was viable, whether you should continue with it and whether they fund it. And that was, that was for me, like that class, that 10 weeks was the most fun I'd ever had in school. And it was the kind of uh, catalyst, I guess, uh, for it planted the seed for me that this is what I really want to do. So then from there, it was kind of a progression of different opportunities. I started my career at a company called IBM, which was 400,000 people and the complete opposite of a startup. And then I kind of worked my way into smaller and smaller uh, companies from there. I joined a hundred person startup and then I joined Intercom. It was 20 people, saw that kind of grow. And all of that was pointing me to eventually starting my own company. Uh, I just like the earliest days the most. Well, I'm sure all of us and all the users for Equals are very grateful for that class that you took at Stanford because it clearly helped us all. Um, so according to you, 
what are the building blocks of having this successful tech startup given that Ecos is a very successful startup what do you think would be the most important factors that play in to make any startup successful at the end of the day yeah i think it starts i mean it starts with the founders and it starts with the passion for the idea it starts you know i something i think a lot about myself is you know um is what you're working on kind of intrinsic uh, meaning is it something that you deeply care about is it something that you want to exist in the world is it something um that exists to uh you know benefit others and to to help others and something again that you're like passionate and fiery about because building a startup is not easy there are many days i wake up and it's the to-do list is never ending um the number of issues that pop up that are not fun to work through are never ending. Uh, and so more than anything else, it starts with, do you care deeply? And is it something that is within you that you're excited and fired up and need to exist in the world? Um, that to me, if you have that, then, you know, all of the other problems we can talk about, what other problems come up as a founder and how you address them and all the little pieces of how you work through them. But if you have that kind of fire, that innateness within the thing that you're working on, all of the other things are kind of, you can work through them. Well, that was a rather insightful answer. Uh, could you like also explain to us how, you know, they say that startups usually struggle while finding their perfect product market fit, right? So how did Equals App identify and refine its target market to achieve uh, such rapid growth? Yeah, uh, it was, so one of the benefits, and this goes back to what I, you know, what I just talked about in that um, one of the great parts about Equals for me is that, you know, for me, it's the product that I wish it existed for myself. And so it's this like passion project that I get to bring in. And so a lot of, a lot of the early days of Equals was kind of uh, spent uh, really reflecting on my own experiences as an, as an analyst and thinking through what are the things that I went through, what are the pain points I had, what are the workflows I wish had existed. Um, and so a lot of it was just came from kind of the decade of work that I had put into the craft that I'd been in. But then obviously alongside that, you know, my experience is my experience. And so um, even before writing a single line of code, I went out and talked to hundreds of other people just like me in similar roles, first finance hires at different companies, first ops people's first, um, you know, uh, CEOs, founders, people who were probably having similar struggles uh, that I was having uh, in my role uh, at Intercom. And so just explain to them kind of what it is that I'm trying to set out to accomplish with equals, what we showed them mock-ups of the product. We showed them, described to them kind of the problems, tried to understand what their problems were. Um, and then from there, it was just constantly talking to people, constantly putting the product as we started to have something, even if it was rough and ugly, it was, let's show it to people. Okay, is it ready to put in somebody's hand? It is, oh my God, it's breaking. It doesn't work. They can't use it. Why can't they use it? And it's just every day trying to talk to and put it in front of as many people and get as much feedback. And from there, if your rough thesis is right, which with equals, I kind of knew it was right because it was the thing that I wish I'd had. Um, if your rough thesis is right, then you just need to iterate your way to what is the thing that really clicks for people? Uh, what are the issues that they're having? Can you get rid of as many issues as possible? 
uh, and then you can get to, you know, that elusive product market fit, which happens, but also does it ever really happen? Does a company ever really get to product market fit? Uh, you always have to keep iterating on it. It always keeps you on your toes, doesn't it? Running a startup really a dream as it sounds. So, you know, scaling a startup from $1 million to $200 million ARR is a significant achievement, I must say. What, are, what were the main challenges during this journey? Could you, like, highlight those? Yeah, I think that the biggest challenge was, uh, we just touched on it, but it was, it's kind of reinventing yourself along every, every step of the way. The, the fallacy you kind of get into when you're in a startup is you always think it's going to get easier. You're like, oh, we'll just make this one higher. We will, uh, we'll just, you know, if we can grow this percentage this month, or if we can hit this ARR target for this year, it's going to get easier. Well, you know, if we can figure out this one thing, if we ship this one feature, whatever you convince yourself of, it, you think it's going to get easier once you do that, and it never gets easier. It never, like, the problems change, the, you, the what you need to do changes, uh, you, you find product market fit the first time, but then you realize that that's going to get you from one to five million in ARR, but actually to get from five to 50 million in ARR, you need to do a completely different thing. You need to build a completely different go-to-market motion. You need to have a different segment of product. You need to have a different product for a different segment of the market. Um, and so it's just this, all that you're always having to kind of reinvent yourself. And so for me, going from one to 200 million in ARR, they were probably at least three or four different reinventions uh, within that. Uh, there were uh, business model reinventions, new products that we had to ship and launch, things that we things that we failed at, things that we smashingly succeeded at. Um, and so the hardest part is just being willing to kind of let go of your old way of thinking about things and sure. starting again and saying, okay, in Intercom's case, for example, the first handful of million of ARR came from a product-led growth kind of bottoms-up motion. But then from there, it was, okay, now we need to figure out how sales works and we need to figure out how to outbound and we need to figure out, and it's a completely different product, completely different motion. It doesn't work at first. You're sitting there banging your head against the wall and you need to figure out how to model. And so you need to throw away everything that you knew before and kind of start again. And so you're constantly having to having to do that. So every day it's a new challenge, right? But let's say uh, for a successful company, you definitely require a strong team. So at Equals, uh, do you guys have a specific hiring and talent management strategy that you assemble for a high-performing team or what do you guys prefer to do? Yeah, I think there's a few things when you kind of um, set up a team. I mean, I think you need to be really clear on the type of culture and the, the um, environment that you want to create. Um, and so I, as a founder, take that responsibility uh, incredibly seriously. So Ben Ben's, uh, Ben McRedman's my co-founder. We set out from the very beginning of starting Equals and laid out what kind of company we want to create. What are the what's the tone that we want to set? What's the uh, ways in which we want to work? And we put it down on paper. And every single person that we've hired, we brought on and said, "Hey, this is these are this is how we work uh, as a team. If you're joining us, you're signing up for this." And then one of the kind of core things that we, we talk a lot about is keeping the team really, really small for what we want to accomplish. Uh, we actually believe that 
smaller teams can do a whole lot more than big teams tend to get kind of bogged down and you trip over one another, you get, you, you just kind of slow each other down. If you, if you keep a small team with a really, really high bar for talent, and that means you've got to be ruthless in some cases about who you bring on and who you keep on at the company. Um, but uh, if you keep that kind of uh, quality bar really, really high and the quantity bar really low, you can actually really unlock some magic. You can, uh, you can do a whole lot more than people believe you can. Um, but for me, it's, you know, making sure that people are understand exactly what we're, we're setting out to achieve. What's our vision? What's our mission? What's the strategy by which we're going to accomplish that? And then setting up really clear parameters and structures for how people are going to be held accountable and how people are going to uh, do their best work. And if you do that, then it becomes glaringly obvious who's working, who's performing, who's not performing. And people are then empowered to do their best work because they know exactly what they need to do and by when they need to do it. Um, just creates a, a really kind of uh, um, seamless kind of uh, place to work. Well, that I'm sure is a wonderful strategy and has worked wonders for you guys. Um, you know, Equals App's growth trajectory is very impressive. And uh, can you highlight any specific marketing or customer acquisition strategy that has played a crucial role in achieving such uh, a good expansion and such a rapid expansion to say? Yeah. So for us, it's been two things that have really kind of, uh, all our growth has come from two, uh, two channels. One has been uh, just showing the product to the world. You know, we're equals as a product first company. Uh, we've built something that's uh, both unique in market and, um, you know, very well designed. Uh, people see it and they understand what equals is. And so uh, what we do, and I think a lot of startups make a mis a lot of startups when they're thinking about marketing and kind of taking their product out into the world, maybe skew a little bit too much towards the hey, here's the solution-y type speak. Like, hey, we're going to save you money. Hey, we're going to um, uh, make you more efficient. Hey, we're going to uh, get you more revenue. And that's like ultimately every product is going to do that. It's going to save you money or make you money. But I think in the early days, you a lot of times you just have to show the product, show it, tell people what it is, let them see it, let them see what it does. Um, because in the early days, like sometimes you don't really, you can't, you haven't really figured out how to articulate exactly what it is, the, the, the pain point or exactly what, you know, uh, what it is that you solve for a customer. And so uh, what we've done is just put the product front and center. You go to our marketing site and it's product, 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 product. A lot of the things that I do on social media, for example, is like demo videos that show a lot of, hey, this is check out what you can do with equals. Here's an example of me doing something in the product and I'll record it and I'll talk through it. Um, but it's all about putting the product front and center. So that's one, Sh putting the product out, shipping fast, showing it. And then the second has been content. Um, content has been something that I've invested a lot in, um, especially in the early days, the first year and a half or so of equals. I was writing blog posts every week and the blog posts for me were, I treated them as kind of not like SEO things, not like how to do this, how to do that, but it was more 
like letters to my former self is really what I what I thought of it as. It was like things that I wish I had known, articles that I wish I had read 10 years ago when I was starting my job at Intercom. And that really connected with people. It was like, okay, you know, these are things that I just wish were helpful. It wasn't again about equals, it wasn't promoting equals, it was just, hey, here are pieces of content that I wish had existed. And then from there, people found out about equals and they'd ping us and we probably got our first 20 customers uh, purely through those uh, those blog posts. Um, and so again, it was just a spirit of kind of helping people and uh, putting stuff out there that I wish had existed for myself. I'm glad that paid off, you helping people and then you know it has worked wonders for you. Um, so I'm sure scaling uh, equals must have been uh, involved a lot of to time where you had to secure funding and maintain solid relationships with your investors, right? So what advice would you have for startups who are looking for funding and, you know, how do they maintain solid relationships with their investors? Yeah, my, my, my advice, and, you know, this was helpful to some people and maybe less helpful to uh, directly to, to founders in seat right now, but... If you're thinking about starting a company, I would, what worked for me was building relationships with investors in a place where I wasn't a founder. So what really helped for me were the eight years that I spent at Intercom where I got to know a ton of VCs. Um, I got to know them through um, being somebody who uh, was either reporting on the business to them. So at Intercom, you know, we had many, many, many different uh, venture investors. Uh, but then also I got to know a lot of folks because we went out and fundraised and I got to talk to lots of uh, prospective investors. And for me, um, I, it was really beneficial to get to build relationships with folks um, outside of the context of, hey, I'm raising money. I need to. Uh, here's my idea. What do you think? Uh, and so I'd encourage folks to, you know, this is my path. But my path was go join a startup, find ways to build uh, relationships with investors outside of a situation where you yourself are needing to raise money or you're pitching the idea. Um, so that's a viable path. And that's one that helped me a lot because once it then became time for me to start a company, I had a whole list of investors that I built relationships with. And it was pretty easy to call them and they knew the caliber of my work. They knew that they knew about my experience. Um, and so just the tone of the conversation that all of them took meetings with me. Um, and again, the tone of the conversation was just uh, fundamentally different. Um, and then maybe on the other end of the spectrum, the advice I'd give to founders is uh, in some ways, like don't talk to VCs unless you're actually raising money. Um, I'm pretty, I think that uh, VCs tend to just, you can get distracted uh, a lot of times. Um, if you're raising money, then talk to all of them and get as many meetings as you possibly can. But if you're not raising money, um, you know, you're, you're honestly just giving them kind of free peeks into your business. Um, and, uh, it's, uh, it's better to just kind of try to do it all at once as opposed to, um, uh, always kind of keeping the door, uh, open to uh, fundraising. Okay. So, you know, uh, since Equal Thirds at Startups is one of those startups which has served a lot of startups and has helped them achieve whatever that they wanted, right? So how do you stay ahead of the market trends and industry changes um, while like um, providing them with the best solutions, but also staying ahead 
to all the changes in the industry and the market trends that we see on everyday basis? Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, it stems back to that kind of, uh, is this something that you're innately passionate about that you care deeply about? You know, a lot of my ideas, a lot of the ideas for equals come from myself, from my co-founder, um, who we've just lived this pain. And so, uh, when you have kind of a, a platform of a product that you can then build on, you can just dream up ideas. I mean, it sounds silly, but like, um, you know, uh, if you deeply understand the problem, deeply understand the space that you're serving, uh, talk to customers frequently, then it's, it's just a part, it's just a process of being creative and thinking through what are the most elegant ways you can solve something, um, and making sure you allocate time to that, that you set aside time to kind of dream up ideas or that you set aside time to just have spontaneous conversation where you can all of a sudden, what, what of you maybe throw out an idea another person builds on it, somebody else takes it in a slightly different direction. And then from there, you're like, oh, wow, okay, maybe this has legs. Um, and so uh, making sure that you're giving yourself, making sure that you understand the problem deeply, are passionate about it, and then giving yourself kind of the, the space and the air to let new things kind of emerge. All is kind of the recipe, in my opinion, to um, staying ahead of the market and uh, building kind of new creative, uh, innovative features. So, you know, everybody talks about utilizing AI, but not everyone I'm sure has mastered it. Uh, what is something that you feel that companies or individuals specifically get wrong about AI? AI is definitely the future and it's here to stay. And um, we uh, were just so, 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 so still early in the kind of evolution of what's going to be possible and how it's going to, how AI is going to kind of get woven into every SaaS product uh, on the market. Um, the thing that I think we struggled with, with AI in the beginning, and I think a lot of startups are kind of, I see a lot of startups kind of making the same mistake, is everything is kind of this like chat interface. We've, we've taken chat GPT and we've tried to basically just copy and paste that into every single product. And, um, you know, for equals, it didn't work. We, that was where we started. It was like, oh, let's build like a little chat interface where you can ask questions of the spreadsheet or you can have it answer questions for you or to give you recommendations or give you summaries. And uh, we found kind of a couple problems. One was uh, OpenAI, ChatGPT just wasn't good at that. Like the, the, the spreadsheet's too big, too broad, too many things you can ask of it. The requirements of what we had to send as prompts to ChatGPT or as kind of... Uh, uh, training data was, again, it was too broad. And so it didn't do a good job of kind of answering a user's questions or get confused. And so we had, we spent a lot of time thinking through how do we really tailor and kind of narrow down the possibilities, the, the, the number of possible prompts and the number of uh, kind of variables that uh, ChatGPT has to consider when answering a question. And so what we ended up doing was actually embedding ChatGPT into different parts of the UI that's contextual to what you're doing there. So uh, ChatGPT for us is integrated with a cell. You can prompt it in a cell. And when you're in a cell, you know specifically you're usually trying to edit a formula or ask it for a formula or ask it to explain a formula. You can also use it in a SQL editor where you're trying to write a SQL query, edit a SQL query, fix a SQL query. You can use it on charts. Uh, where you're trying to edit a chart or ask something in the chart. 
And so it's about kind of being really specific in the ways in which you want to use AI and then tailoring that experience to the end user such that they can use it in a way that's most powerful and most accurate for them. Okay, so while we're talking about the future, uh, according to you, which technologies are currently defining success and which ones do you think would be leading the game by 2025? When you say defining success, what do you mean by that? Um, for example, what technologies do you think would really aid um, the users and would uh, basically are something that you should uh, everybody should be looking forward to in the future? Well, I mean, I think it, uh, I think we're all really, really excited about the kind of uh, onslaught of new AI tools and uh, the future. Um, so curious to just kind of see how that evolves over time. And um, like I said, I think we're just 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 at the very kind of precipice of that. Um, yeah, and maybe kind of uh, leave it there for now. So just at the end, would, do you have a advice for aspiring entrepreneurs or people who plan on starting a startup in the coming future? What advice would you want to give them? Yeah, um, I'd say uh, a few things. Um, one, if you're excited and passionate about it, uh, it's about as fun a journey as you can possibly go on. Uh, it's um, so go for it. And, you know, uh, one of the things that I've learned over, over my career and in my life is, uh, you never know what's going to happen a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, tomorrow. Uh, and so if you want to do something, if you want to try it, if you want to, it's right now, go for it. Uh, and so, um, you know, for me, this has been, I, I started my career and spent 10 years in, in finance and analytics, and it's a totally different experience being a founder, uh, but it's the thing that I'm, it finally feels like I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And so um, if you have kind of that pull, uh, get excited about an idea, try to solve a real problem for people, um, and then go for it because it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of fun. Well, that was a one hell of advice. Um, with that, we're going to end. And thank you so much for joining us. We're really, really grateful for having you today here. And um, do you have any closing remarks before you leave? No, that's all. Thanks so much for having me. This was really fun. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to BetterTech. We look forward to bringing you the latest industry news in our next episode. In the meantime, check out our other episodes at techcell.com slash podcast and be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel so that you never miss an episode.